You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Justin Reamer. Today, I'm so excited to have with us author Ross Melnick with his book, Hollywood Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World. Uh, Ross Melnick is a professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is the author of American Showman, Samuel Roxy Rothafel and the Birth of the Entertainment Industry, 1908 to 1935, and co-editor of Rediscovering U.S. News Film, cinema, television, and the archive. Thanks, Ross, for being with us. Um, uh, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like you to start off by reading uh, some of uh, the books so our listeners can hear it, Hollywood's Embassies. Sure, well, I've chosen the, uh, just the beginning of the introduction I need to give you a flavor of what the book's about. So I'll go ahead and start that now. Cool. The opening night of 20th Century Fox's Royal Cinema in Salisbury, Southern Rhodesia, now Harare, Zimbabwe, on September 7, 1959, was slated to have a picture-perfect Hollywood ending. The country's top politicians were on hand for the debut of the Fox film South Pacific, with all proceeds for the local Red Cross. South Pacific's message of racial tolerance, however, was starkly undermined by Fox's South African management team, who had strictly forbidden all non-Europeans, in quotes, from attending the opening, in direct opposition to the Southern Rhodesian government's stated policy of, quote-unquote, multiracial partnership. Like many other US-operated cinemas overseas, the Royal became a highly contested venue for Hollywood and the US government, which struggled for years to contain the diplomatic and public relations crisis that erupted before and after the premiere. 20th Century Fox's troubled history in Africa, from the politically divisive whites-only cinemas that operated in Kenya, South Africa, and colonial Zimbabwe, to its Egyptian cinemas that were sites of political protest and violence during the 1940s and 1950s, reflects the industrial opportunities and geopolitical complications Hollywood encountered around the world in Africa, Asia, Australasia, the Caribbean, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East during its nine decades of global film exhibition. Hollywood's Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World, is the first political, cultural, and industrial history of Hollywood's foreign ownership and operation of hundreds of cinemas in more than three dozen countries from 1923 to 2013. Over the past three decades, numerous scholars such as Ian Jarvie, Richard Maltby, Kristen Thompson, and John Trumbor have analyzed Hollywood's distribution of films overseas and the complex structure of quote unquote, global Hollywood. Despite these invaluable contributions, there has been little research examining how MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers operated hundreds of cinemas outside of North America, from Argentina to Zimbabwe, to secure distribution for their films and attract local moviegoers to American-style cinemas featuring American studio product. The importance of these Hollywood-owned cinemas and cinema chains for local audiences and the manner in which they secured international markets for American films is largely absent from most works focused on the relationship between Hollywood films and their global circulation. Philip Turner's short history of Europe's rebranded MGM cinema circuit, which was formed in England in 1991, is a case in point as Turner overlooks the scale and size of Hollywood's earlier cinema's exhibition expansion. He writes that, quote, outside of the original MGM Lowe's production exhibition arrangement, MGM appears never to have enjoyed the luxury of a worldwide theater network, end quote. 
Although the company had owned and operated dozens of cinemas throughout the world for half a century from the 1920s well into the 1970s, from Rio de Janeiro to London to Johannesburg to Mumbai and Manila. Charles Ackland's Screen Traffic, a seminal work on multiplexes, globalization, and Hollywood overseas, is one of the very few books to reference this earlier history of cinema globalization. Observing that Paramount, Lowe's, and Fox had a smattering of foreign theaters in earlier periods, he concludes that, quote, these precursors pale in comparison to the building and buying of the 1990s. However, by the late 1950s, 20th Century Fox alone owned and operated hundreds of cinemas throughout the world, stretching from Lima to Amsterdam to Nairobi to Calcutta to Melbourne and back again. Neither have scholars reckoned with another striking feature of Hollywood's global machinery, that audiences in major media capitals around the world were as seduced by the hundreds of cinemas owned and operated by MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and other US film companies as by the films themselves. As cinema architect S. Charles Lee famously opined, the allure of Hollywood and its exotic show began on the sidewalk from the first glittering Paramount bulb on the marquee to Warner Brothers' sumptuous lobbies, to MGM's deluxe ushers and ballyhoo, to 20th Century Fox's musical fanfare, newsreels, and its short and feature films. As I argue in American Showman, my previous book from 2012, A Night at the Movies was a cohesive and powerfully transporting experience, one that operated as a so-called shop window for American films, industrial practices, and culture, and as a cultural embassy for Hollywood, selling a very specific American style of entertainment and politics in which American films, stars, and brands were the exotic allure. Malpe argues that Hollywood's global influence and the, quote, active Americanization took place in that space between the audience and the screen, in the transient act of consumption of the shadow images of cinema's great dark room, end quote. From 1923 to 2013, Hollywood sold its films, its brand identity, and its ideology to urban moviegoers through these buildings, featuring American technology, management, and cinema policies, some of which actually revealed darker truths, paradoxes, and hypocrisies about the United States to undercut the work of official U.S. embassies and consulates operating throughout the world. Hollywood's embassies documents and analyzes a history that has either been largely diminished in scholarly importance or more to the point is largely unknown. However, historians who have worked on national film exhibition histories of England, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and many other nations have individually noted the importance of Hollywood exhibitors operating on their home turf. What has remained absent from the previous film historiography though, is a regional comparative and global examination of this transnational phenomenon. As I argue throughout this book, singular analyses of Hollywood's exhibition operation in a particular country almost always need to be conducted with larger regional frameworks in mind. 20th Century Fox's exhibition forays in Egypt, for example, directly related to its exhibition operations in Israel and vice versa. Paramount and Lowe's MGM strategy in France reflected its experience in England. Fox's dominance in Australia and New Zealand exhibition were related to changes in domestic, regional, and global investment banking, and later, by commingled management and executives. Paramount's investment in cinema exhibition in the Caribbean involved multiple countries and interconnected exhibitors, countries, and politics. A regional approach also helps us better understand Hollywood's exhibition interest in West and North Africa, East Asia, South America, and many other regions throughout the world. The more one examines Hollywood's investment in and description of local and regional markets, the more evident are the ways in which Hollywood executives, US consular officials, and local political leaders achieved their financial, diplomatic, and political goals. Likewise, 
Hollywood's hold over local audiences was cemented not only through its on-screen narratives, but through the cinemas in which they were shown. Um, you talk about how that there's not much scholarly exploration into this and like what, like when, when did you, did you start this book because you saw that gap or like what, what started you here? So. Well, it was one of those, uh, uh, you know, strange coincidences that were, that leads to another book, which was that I was working on the previous book, American Showman about Samuel Roxy Rothfeld. And I started noticing that all the people who were working with him were being sent by MGM to Paris. And I couldn't figure out why MGM was sending employees to a Paris cinema in 1925 and 26. And what it turned out was that Paris, that MGM had made a deal with a, with a French company, Gaumont, in which MGM, Lowe's slash MGM, they were sutured together as a company then, uh, they were made to deal with Gaumont where they would run distribution and exhibition operations for a French company. So that got me thinking, why was Hollywood operating foreign cinemas for another company outside of, outside of the US? And that then led to, well, I knew about the Paramount in Paris. And then I started looking into the MGM cinema in London, the Empire, as well as Paramount Theater in London Plaza. And then I started looking around the world and it became this sort of like slow sort of Easter egg hunt of looking for theaters. And so I, I, had, I had found, oh, they were operating in five countries and then they were operating in 10. And so I was doing that throughout much of the 2000s. So when I got to the 2010s and the you know, American Showman book had been put to bed and I began working on this more earnestly. Um, the 12 theaters, 12 countries had become 15 and then 18. And by the time the book was finished, there's 36 countries in which wow. you know, everywhere from you know, Trinidad uh, to, to France, to uh, Kenya, uh, to China and uh, over to Brazil, et cetera. So it, it became a kind of an interest of trying to figure out what was this strategy? And the question was, was there a unified strategy for Hollywood? Did it change year to year? Did it change country to country? And I think what's happened in, in that history is what a lot of people have discovered in recent um, writing about film history, which is there was no unified principle of Hollywood. Every single country was a different opportunity. Every studio approached that country differently. And those strategies changed uh, from decade to decade and even from executive to executive. So what I ended up having to do was instead of writing a really uh, kind of perfectly uh, aligned history of saying everyone did it for this reason. You got mm. to reveal these stories. Why was Hollywood in South Africa? Why was MGM operating in Egypt? Why was Fox operating in Israel? You got to reveal certain uh, stories about what the politics were, what the changes in culture were happening, why Hollywood was investing in certain markets in certain times. So in other words, it essentially created uh, 36 countries of interest, which then I organized into sort of six regional sections, which then span 90 years. And so each one of them is a sort of, uh, hopefully, uh, an enclosed narrative that then ties together across this vast geographical sweep that really does circle the globe. Yeah, I, and I, I, as I was reading through it, I came to appreciate the regional approach because I do think that each uh, sort of section of your book has like a different flavor to it. Um, like, like the, the section in, uh, in like Australia and New Zealand is just like completely like corporate takeovers and mergers and just sort of like, like it starts with almost like a mom and pop, uh, chain in New Zealand. And then Fox just slowly buys it up entirely, you know? Um, so that has its flavor, but then like, you know, in the European section, you also have kind of like this world war II spy story, essentially where La Paramount is being used as like 
you know, the French underground headquarters. Um, so, so you, how, you were working on this for 10 years. Um, like, I don't, I don't know. Like what, what's the story that kind of like grabbed you the most? Cause, cause uh, yeah, just, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, you, you, you just nailed one of them. I mean, the, the, the story of the Paramount and what happened during World War II and the sort of the, the, the French resistance and then the use of a movie theater underneath the noses of the Nazis who were watching uh, at every turn and then even employees being sent off to concentration camps. And you really could feel like, what does it mean to be uh, a Parisian who works for a Hollywood film company? What is the danger of that? What's the advantage and what's the what's the what's the trouble? And I think that's a consistent story. Um, I think when you look at the story, I mean, one of the stories that I've probably talked about the most is really 20th Century Fox's operations in this sub-Saharan Africa, which I think most people didn't know about um, when I was working on it, and which was that uh, for those listening at home, uh, Fox ran about 155 theaters that stretched from South Africa to Kenya. So they had a very, very dominant exhibition chain. They also had a hugely dominant distribution network that ran through. And so they ran uh, a company called African Consolidated Theaters from 1956 to 1969. They also then ran further operations in Kenya through into 1975. And this, of course, is during the main thrust of, of apartheid, apartheid, which was officially consecrated in 48. So... Hollywood is telling one story, which is they love these progressive stories on screen about anyone can be anyone and we're, you know, the world is colorblind and it's all about the sort of humanistic aspirations of, uh, of man, whereas they're enforcing racial segregation and apartheid inside their own theaters, which they're operating overseas, which is completely counter to the message that the American embassies and consulates are trying to transmit during the Cold War in Africa. So... As you mentioned, every single country, every single section is very, very different. As you said, in Australia, New Zealand, I didn't want to spend my time looking at at at, at uh, debt and and banking. But you start to realize, oh, that's how these operations work. It's through a lot of uh, it's a lot of banks and a lot of financing. But then you look at things like uh, what's going on in, in Asia, and you see the the turn of uh, kind of a philo Americanism that happens around. Uh, in Japan, for instance, after the earthquake, everyone's very in love with America because they send these free movies in. And then American immigration laws change, and it's very much against Japanese here in the U.S. And that comes back to Japan. And then there's a rise of anti-Americanism. And the movie house in Egypt and in India and in Japan and everywhere becomes a kind of front-facing um, venue for all of the expressions of local populaces around um around the United States. And so that's a good news and that's bad news depending on what time it is. And I would say that, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about these theaters, especially those that are the 20s, 30s and 40s, they all predate McDonald's and Starbucks and all of the other American buildings like theme parks that we're very used to. So what actually begin, would happen, you know, many decades later, American exhibitors and studio companies and uh, film companies, they all sort of dealt with these issues where um, they were the boots on the ground. They were the most publicly facing, often the most public face of a Western edifice in an international city. So they dealt with all of the love that American, that people had for the United States. And sometimes they dealt with all the anger. And that was certainly expressed in, in Cairo, as I mentioned in the book, you know, the, um, the, M, you know, the uh, MGM theater, the Metro theater was bombed or attacked three times in 1945, 47 and 52 um for various reasons sometimes it was a kind of a it was a kind of an anti-monarchal uh against uh against the king farouk sometimes it was about um the anti-british moment because of what was happening 
uh, in the kind of a battle of the Suez. And sometimes it was about the kind of anti-Israel uh, things that were happening, anti-Zionism that was happening in Cairo. So, you know, the book began as an idea about sort of looking at Hollywood's foreign operations in a kind of industrial, sometimes even an aesthetic architectural way. But as you begin to work your way through, you realize that much of the book is really about culture and politics and about the changes in our globe and about Hollywood's and America's place in it. Because before World War II, there's one's conception of what the US is. This is kind of upstart country, which has this burgeoning kind of cultural empire in terms of Hollywood with expression. And after World War II, it is distinctly involved in many countries, uh, domestic and some say even foreign affairs. And so, you know, Hollywood is um, always been um, a kind of uh, associate, right, with the soft power of American foreign policy and cultural policy. So these buildings, they reflect that excitement and they also reflect that hatred. Well, yeah, I, I'm reminded too of, you mentioned, I forget the country, but it, it was in Latin America where even after like uh, Lowe's Metro has left, the Cine Metro is attacked by leftists because they just associate the Cine Metro with, with America, you know, with the West. Yeah, with America. Yeah, that was wow. uh, in, in Colombia, absolutely. Because, yeah. the, you know, the MGM had, had left already, but, you know, that, that, the, the, the sort of aura around those buildings is that they were, just as I described, the reason the book is called Hollywood's Embassies, because to me, these really are a kind of, they're like a cultural embassy. They're a way for people in that country to come into the United States on a kind of physical ground. But even when MGM pulls out and sells those cinemas, the aura, even the films are still going to be probably Hollywood films, and the aura of those buildings is they have represented American cultural imperialism for decades and therefore are targets um, for protest and sometimes um, something much more violent. Well, take it back to the beginning, because I found it really fascinating, because obviously part of the motivation for Hollywood to, to have their own cinemas is we want more money. We're not getting enough out of this, but like, but like, it also is sort of like, they're not showing our movies. Right. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Like, yeah. So they have this idea in, in England, especially this thing called the, the shop window theater. And this idea is, is very interesting, which is twofold. And, and you, you positioned it perfectly, which is that there's two main reasons why they built the built, built, bought, leased, operated these theaters overseas. One is, if you run your own theater overseas, you obviously collect the box office and you get to keep it. You don't have to split the profits. That's a nice benefit, but that's not the real reason many of these theaters were built. In many cases, they felt that um, the theater box office prices were too low. The presentation methods were not good enough. Um, they wanted to essentially uh, present direct competition with local exhibitors and also use them as, this is a kind of British term, shop windows so that the movie house presenting take your pick wings uh, would actually present the proper way to put this movie on. You would get, and if it was a silent film, you would have the proper presentation of music accompanying that film, that this, the lobby would be adorned properly, that the, um, the, the film that surrounded it, the newsreels and the shorts would be arranged properly, that everything was exactly as it should be presented in the Paramount way in a Paramount theater. And that benefit, therefore, is that someone who is an exhibitor who operates in Leeds or Liverpool can come to London because, of course, that Paramount Theater or MGM Theater gets that movie first before anybody else. It's often a three to six week exclusive booking. They can come into Liverpool or from Leeds by train, go to the American movie house and see exactly as it's supposed to be presented. How is the exploitation? How is the bookstore or the other store down the street 
you know, working in concert to sort of promote this theater? What are the other banners around? Are there other kinds of tie-ins? What is the kind of marketing exploitation ballyhoo around this film? And then how is it presented in the stage? And then also, again, this idea of gloved and uniformed ushers, the proper presentation of music and film, and all of those things are a shop window, the way you would think of them like in a department store. They would present and sell that product in the proper way. And that would give you an idea of how to do it. But even more than that, that's the best way you can you can present it. The other way was, um, if you don't raise your standards to the ones that we have, well, everyone will just come to our theater. So that caused a lot of domestic exhibitors to figure out, oh, well, if we want to get our, our customers to like our cinemas, cinemas as much as the Hollywood ones, we're going to have to, you know, train our ushers this way. We're going to have to present this kind of stage show. We're going to have to do this kind of work on the outside and the inside. And then we're going to have to charge more money. And if they're charging more money, then that money is going to be a higher ticket price, which goes back to Hollywood, which can, which is increasingly really needs by the 20s, 30s and 40s is really reliant on foreign grosses because the domestic box office is great. And you know that world, you know, it opens in New York and LA and Chicago and it platforms around and hopefully it does well, but the driving force, and we see, we hear this all the time, even in 2022 and the, when people talk about the stock market, we need new growth markets. So every time you open up and expand and raise the revenue of in a particular market, you can grow your overall numbers. And that's the way that Hollywood would look at this. If we can, we can raise the ticket prices in France, if we can raise the ticket prices in Brazil, if we can get more people to come see our movies and want to have, raise those standards, um, we will be able to get more money from the foreign market. So, you know, there's multiple reasons for it, but I think, as you mentioned, this presentational aspect had one thing, which was to present the American movie. But I think the other thing that they were really trying to do is they were trying to sort of homogenize slash Americanize the way people watch films to standard it, standardize um, technology. One of the things that you got from these theaters that Americans run, ran, um, you got the film first. And that may sound like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, these are films, they're not digital. So right. the first run means that's the film before it gets scratched and dented and, and, and banged up. So you got a premiere presentation with the Bex projection um, with the best sound before the film, you know, started getting, you know, shipped from one theater to the next and getting perf holes and all kinds of other marks. So it was the premiere shop window presentation moment of that film. And everybody after that had to try to model it or at least try to approach it. And you had to live up to a certain kind of standard. So they were really sort of trying to influence the way people went to the movies and the way that people also presented uh, motion pictures. Yeah, I uh, you talking about that? It, I forget if it was Siegfried Krakauer or someone, but like, like it, it was very funny. Like the put, like, like it seemed like most most people were like, "This is great." Yeah, like we're, we'll get higher quality screenings, but there's still people was like, "You're distracting from what it is." We need to watch movie. So, so you're right. There's this like push to sort of homogenize how you make movies, but it, I found it very amusing that there was still like the is like, no, no, this isn't how you watch movies. We we sit quietly and we we focus. <laughs> you know, like that's how. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. A, I think that's the the number one thing that's always funny about the American process, which is that, you know, there's, you know, the love-hate relationship with the United States probably, you know, obviously predates movies, but on the one hand, what is more synonymous with the United States for the 20th century than Hollywood? And in a way, you know, you're, you're, this whole idea, and you're mentioning Krakauer's kind of rejection of this kind of phantasmagorical, 
you know, exhibition landscape. I think it's, it's this sort of like, what is this? Like, this is, this is not film. This is not art. This is like fantasy and escapism and mass entertainment and a kind of like, it's almost like a theme park for the senses. And I think that's precisely what um, Hollywood wanted to do. It didn't want to always, you know, assault you, but it wanted to elevate and, and, and excite. And I think that's where um, you, that, that's where I make that a slight argument that I think, you know, Hollywood audiences around the world, they, they loved Hollywood films and everyone sort of fell, if they fell in love with, with America, they often did it because, you know, they watched Gone with the Wind or they watched Wizard of Oz and they sort of thought about what it meant to be American from this very foreign place. But the movie house, which was now showing up in your city, was this other way of seeing how Americans did things. And sometimes in the best moments, they were multi-class venues that allowed people to feel as if they were the old adage, feel like a king or a queen, you know, despite whatever they paid. Um, and as long as you could get in, right, those ones that were not racially divided or segregated or, uh, or you know, terrifically um, segregated by class, if you had this kind of environment, they could present this way that, oh, America lets everyone in and everybody can uh, afford whatever's on the screen and you could live this dream. And you're then catered to by the people who run the American movie house as if you are uh, the king and queen for a day. And that's the whole mantra of the movie house. So the messaging of America, which was again, supposed to be this kind of post-class, post-racial utopia was being emanated from the movies as well as from the screens themselves. And that's the sort of, one-two punch that I think people haven't talked about as much and what I hope that this book sort of demonstrates. And I think that's why they were very important um, for the embassies. And then when they went the other way, when they actually exposed some of the realities and the hypocrisy of the United States, they were just as dangerous as they might've been helpful. Yeah, I, uh, I was particularly struck. I mean, you mentioned a little bit in your intro, but like the, the anecdotes in Cairo and in India about the Metro Cub Club where it's kind of like, you know, get the kids hooked early on this on this uh, thing of, of going to the movies and the sort of description of the blissful intermission where you got a Coca-Cola and I don't know, it's just, you know, just Coca-Cola is so loaded as well, but just like uh, this thing. Yeah, I don't know that that was yeah, so no, transportive, I but but especially for little kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the you're, you're speaking about the Metro Cub Club, which is just one of those, you know, I mean, take away all the the strangeness of thinking about little children as cubs, but the idea, you know, which has its own kind of maybe colonial <laughs> legacy, you know, it's okay. But um, but the Cub Club is, as you said, it's this sort of perfect idea of how to sell Nabisco and Coca Cola and all these products to new children, and they did that in places that were increasingly independent and increasingly post-colonial and thinking about their own address and relationship to the West, you know, Egypt, India, places like that. So on one hand, the kids were coming out of um, this new India, this new Egypt, and they were thinking about their own nationalism, but then they were also being sold a brand new excitement around the idea of American movies. And so suddenly you could hold two thoughts in your head. You could both be a proud Indian, but you could also be a, a big fan of Saturday matinees and the Metro Cub Club and Tom and Jerry and all of these kinds of these brands and, and experiences which were becoming part of your childhood. And I think Hollywood also understood that there were gonna be challenging markets, but there were ways to address new generations and they did that through the children because they it was a very important they, they still understand that hollywood does that you get someone before they're 18 and they'll love it forever if you don't hook them by the time they go into you know the workforce or college 
it's very hard to get them later, but they understood very much in these kinds of foreign markets that the Cub Club, and they had the big sales, I mean, they had long kind of manuals and portfolios and brochures about two exhibitors that they send around the world. Here's how you create Cub Clubs. Here's how you get kids in. Here's how you do the birthday cake on the stage. This is how you do sell the Coca-Cola. And so again, that's very, very useful for embassies, which are trying to think about how to get American branding and American companies and a kind of American ideology around the world. The movie house is a soft power, soft mo moment. It's not enforced, but you know, kids love it. And so do the marketers and merchandisers who understand the importance of being in those spaces. Yeah, well, it, it was just a little detail, but you, you mentioned the birthday cake thing. My favorite little detail was that it was like, don't pay for the birthday cake, get the local grocer to give it to you free as promotional, like <laughs> such an American thing to do. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, cross promotion is really important. I mean, it's funny. I mean, that's the thing. There's, a, there's an image in the book of um, these three guys. So in, in Brazil and Rio, there were three MGM cinemas at the same time, beginning around 1941. There were Tijuca, Copacabana, and the one that was in uh, Cinelangia in the, in the main sort of center of the city. And these guys, there's an image of them, these guys with sandwich boards walking around the city, literally walking billboards. And I think that I didn't talk a lot about it in the book because at some point when you're this long in the book, you need to stop. But I will say, I was hoping that the, the image itself would convey a kind of thought process, which is that, you know, the building sits on a street, but the marketing of those buildings does not. It goes on billboards, it goes on trolleys, it goes on buses, it goes on what people walking around the city, it goes into displays. And so what happens is you have this exotic space that increasingly becomes familiarized. So you have both something that is quotidian and something that is exotic. So the American movie house is an exotic space, but it's everywhere. In your city, it's sewn into the fabric of how you buy things, how you watch things, where you walk. And so it's familiar. And again, it's solving another kind of conversation of how do you make uh, America feel or the United States feel very much like part of your life? Well, it's everywhere. It's just part of the fabric of your existence. So you get that duality of something that's both exotic and familiar and local. And that's really the kind of genius of these buildings. Yeah. Um, we got time for maybe one other thought. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your epilogue, which is sort of so Hollywood pretty much divested from having uh, international theaters. You put it at 2013, was that, where was that at? So in 2013, uh, Warner Brothers sold its last theater chain in Japan uh, okay. to my Kyle. So that's how, that's my figurative end of the book. There are certainly American companies like AMC and, and Cinemark that have foreign uh, chains, but I'm not interested in what movie theater companies are doing. I was interested in what the studios were doing. So for me, right. this is about how do individual studios operate theaters overseas, which Warner Brothers ended that. They had a company called Warner Brothers International Cinemas, which was very, very successful from the 80s into the 2010s. Um, and the epilogue, as you're pointing out, is that the whole thing gets reversed. The whole thing gets flipped. And it's because it's twofold. One is markets around the world are where the growth opportunities are. America's been a... Uh, for a long time was a very over over screened or properly screened and full up kind of experience there wasn't a lot of growth opportunities you know theaters would close and open but there weren't boom moments china for the last 20 years has been an absolute boom market for exhibition eastern europe latin america middle east these have all grown exponentially um as exhibition markets so as those companies were growing sinapolis in mexico cjcgv which is in south korea and many others they were expanding, taking on capital, and they were starting to have some of the same thoughts in their mind 
well, we should have one in Los Angeles because we want to extend our brand. We have a big Korean community. And so, so CJCGV is a good example. They create something called a cultureplex where they see the movie theater as not just a movie house, but a place where Korean culture and Korean food and Korean merchandise can be sold so that you get a holistic experience, just like the American movie houses were thinking about them in the 20th century. So yeah, that has reversed. And of course, Dali and Wanda, which is a massive Chinese company with real estate and exhibition and many other things, they owned AMC and Hoyts and Odeon and many other theater chains around the world. Um, that came crashing down with um, a, a number of kind of debt issues, issues that happened with Dali and Wanda and of course the pandemic. But that is such an interesting thing that happened that I spend, you know, this whole book and 90 years talking about Hollywood's growth. And then Hollywood says, you know, I don't really need the theatrical exhibition. I don't need to own it. Uh, in some cases, as you can see in the last few years, they've even sometimes even decided not even to distribute theatrically their films, but they definitely don't want to be invested in it. It's also a, a bit complicated for them because if they're seen as someone who operates theaters, are they privileging their own product? So there's sometimes even across purposes, regardless of whatever the reasons are by this point, those kind of incursions now into quote unquote foreign soil are actually coming from outside the United States into the US. So Sinopolis is an ascendant chain. And again, CJCGV and many others are coming to the United States and they're going to India and they're going to many other places. So all of these kinds of global circulations, which are very much reflective of our world, not that world. But I did think it was really interesting and important to kind of see why Reliance spent so much money to have a big Indian theater chain that was here in the United States for many years with Phoenix and why there was so much interest in investing in the United States and what an ironic change that is and a stark change. And the reason I think that's so important is we have been talking a lot about exhibition during the pandemic. Will movie theaters exist? How are movie theaters doing? Um, <clears throat> I think the idea that um, American chains were suddenly being taken over by foreign corporations just gives you the contrast of how different that period was in the 20th century um, in terms of how things are now, which where Hollywood is very much involved in international um, distribution, but much more on the digital level and thinking much more about how to get into foreign markets without building anything upon them. Right. Um, well, great. Thank you so much, Ross. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, a great talk for me. I hope it was for you too. Uh, please check out Ross's book. Either come come to Skylight Books at 1818 North Vermont Avenue. Well, actually, your book would be in the Arts Annex with the film books in 1814 North Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles or skylightbooks.com. Um, have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.